One of the earlier series I released on Potstar Podcast was the Detroit America series. It was episodes 25 and 26, and these were released back in 2018. This was a two-parter where I gave a brief history of my hometown of Detroit, Michigan, and how the city's trajectory was a mirror of sorts to America. The lack of investment and accountability nearly killed Detroit, and so did racism. And even during those flashes of greatness, there was always a drive to put the oppressed in their place. As long as that continues to be the case, our society and our democracy as a whole will suffer. In the second episode of that series, I discussed an analogy given by attorney Carl E. Douglas in the O.J. Simpson miniseries, O.J. Made in America. Douglas, who was part of the late Johnny Cochran's legal firm, discussed how Cochran's client, former NFL football player O.J. Simpson, had been found not guilty in criminal court for the 1994 slayings of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. The trial happened against the backdrop of recent acquittals of the police officers who severely beat motorist Rodney King on camera in 1992. Both cases were in California. And while what OJ was being accused of was essentially a crime of passion rather than a racially motivated slaying, the case, which involved a very famous black man accused of killing a white woman and a white man, brought to the surface a lot of deep-seated racial animosity and discord. When OJ was found not guilty, the reactions were generally split along racial lines. And this wasn't a media narrative. Ask any American who was old enough to clearly remember the OJ trial, and they'll probably tell you that the split was very, very real. I saw it with my own two eyes when I was in my mostly black high school with an overwhelmingly white teaching staff and administration. And I think that a lot of white people upset at the verdict, who felt that a murderer went free, couldn't understand why so many black people rejoiced. It wasn't because they didn't want Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman's families to receive justice. If you talk to black Americans today, there's a diversity of opinions regarding OJ's guilt. I, for one, always felt that, at the very least, he knew who did it. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But a lot of Black people in the mid-1990s rejoiced the verdict because the case was a symbol of something else. We had seen so many Black people brutalized by police officers, vigilantes, perpetrators of hate crimes, and so on. And we'd been on the other side of things, watching perpetrators of crimes against our family members and friends go unpunished, with no justice in sight. While so many black men without OJ's fame or finances were quickly ushered through the legal system, more likely to be arrested, more likely to be convicted, more likely to receive harsh sentences for the same crimes. Even innocents have been sent to death row and some have even died before being exonerated. The winning at the buzzer was less about OJ himself, who had always been ambivalent at best when it came to black folks. After all, he once said, quote, I'm not black, I'm OJ, end quote. But while OJ won the criminal case, unlike so many wealthy white Americans who have gotten away with murder and a host of other felonies, the system wasn't through with OJ. 
OJ would then experience what Douglas referred to as the fifth quarter. Despite constitutional protection against double jeopardy, OJ wouldn't skate so easily. The families of the victims sued OJ in civil court, and with a lower burden of proof, and with a less impressive legal team for the defendant, since OJ spent a lot of money on his criminal trial, OJ would lose and owe the Brown and Goldman families $33.5 million, a judgment that to this day he has not been able to satisfy in full. Then in 2007, OJ Simpson would be arrested in an incident where he was essentially stealing back his own memorabilia in a Las Vegas hotel. The judge in that case, Jackie Glass, would sentence him to up to 33 years for the robbery, which was explicitly symbolic, as Nicole Brown Simpson was 33 years old when she was killed. Glass would go on to make money off her role in the case, as star of a short-lived daytime judge show. OJ would serve nine years in prison before being paroled in 2017. The fifth quarter got OJ. And I applied this fifth quarter analogy to post-1967 riots, mostly black Detroit. That when Detroit would assert itself, buck the system, and gain small victories despite the white flight, the divestment, the lost tax base, and the negative press, the system would always always come back to stuff the city back down again and put it in its place. The 2020 election was one of those times where, at least on the presidential level, Black Americans were able to make a difference despite contemporary efforts at voter suppression by unseating Donald Trump and helping to elect Joe Biden. And with the election of two Democratic senators from usually red Georgia, helping the Democrats gain a slight advantage in the U.S. Senate. But the backlash, the laws that are designed to strip Black people of our ability to make a difference in elections, is the fifth quarter of voting rights. And as always, white supremacy remains undefeated. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstir Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Ever since the 2020 election, the Republican Party has kicked it into high gear when it comes to making it much more difficult for certain populations to vote, or for their votes to count. And unfortunately, the Democrats, who rely on these growing populations for their share of power, have not met the moment with the seriousness it deserves. The 2021 election, an off-year election that has seen some modest gains for Republicans, shows that the Democratic Party has still learned absolutely nothing. Nothing. The lesson they continue to take from losing elections is to lean into a shrinking demographic rather than to simply be unashamed advocates for the demographics that are growing, to please that demographic who will never support them in high numbers anyway and to placate their corporate benefactors. Third-way Democrats continue their efforts to shift and scooch further and further to the right and cede the narrative to the Republican Party. As long as the Democratic Party continues to do that, they are doing their part to enable GOP minority rule similar to South African apartheid. 
even the effort by Democrats to make sure their own base is able to vote is half-hearted and half-assed, as they've shown little urgency to undo or challenge Republican efforts at voter suppression. There are bills that have been written to be considered by Congress, which I'll discuss later in this episode, but not enough effort has been made to make them law. While the Democrats have a small voting majority in both chambers of Congress, they govern as if they're still in the minority. Don't forget, the Republicans were once in a similar position numbers-wise to the Democrats, but they were willing to fight through Democratic filibusters, real or threatened, to get their way. The Democrats looked to Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema as their ready-made excuses for not actually making a true effort at ensuring the right of their own freaking base to vote. Are you really telling me you can't make deals with them to make this happen? You did it with infrastructure, but voting rights isn't all that important. Staying in power isn't all that important. Democracy isn't all that important. What's more important, Democrats? Money? Loyalty to the capitalist power structure that's encouraging the destruction of democracy right now? And see, I'm not off base here. Look, after the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2020, lots and lots of companies were on the Black Lives Matter train. Yay diversity! Yay black people! How many of them have since financed those who support voter suppression? How many of them have since donated to office holders, and sponsored media that pushed for the erasure of real American history in Black scholarship because, oh my God, CRT. How many of them have since bankrolled politicians who supported the January 6th insurrection or Donald Trump's bogus claims to have won the 2020 election? I mean, it's come out recently that extreme right-wing cable news channel One American News Network or OANN, a channel that has gone whole hog into Trumpist conspiracies, COVID-related propaganda, and mainlined bigotry, is funded to the tune of 90% by AT&T. Yes, that AT&T. Fascism, brought to you by AT&T. It's not complicated. But really, this is not a new development. As I discussed in previous episodes, Voting rights have been a major political issue for generations since America's founding. In the U.S., voting rights historically were primarily limited to white men, initially those who owned property, though the property ownership requirement fell away in the years after the founding. The 15th Amendment, which prohibits denial of the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude, and the 19th Amendment, prohibiting the denial of the right to vote based on sex, were intended to expand the electorate. And to a degree, they did. But most Black Americans, as well as many other people of color, were effectively barred from exercising their voting rights through obstacles erected by state and local governments to keep them from the ballot box. But this modern effort to keep Americans from voting, and the reason Democrats have been slow to act, can be traced back to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, there had been efforts to tackle voting rights 
so that black Americans and other people of color could exercise their right to vote that was enshrined in the 15th Amendment. But these laws primarily required enforcement through the courts. The problem with laws that rely on litigation is that even if the courts find that the law has been violated, the courts by themselves do not have a police force or an army. The courts are reliant on other levels and branches of government for enforcement. A great example of how that can be a problem is the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the integration of public schools. But state and local resistance to segregation meant that public schools in the South took close to two decades in order to fully integrate. So when it came to voting rights, there needed to be a law that had actual teeth. So on August 6, 1965, a year after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law, which was intended to remove the barriers that prevented America's marginalized groups from exercising their right to vote. When the Voting Rights Act was first enacted in 1965, it was essentially divided into two types of provisions, general provisions and special provisions. The general provisions outlined the purpose of the act, which was to aid enforcement of the 15th Amendment. These provisions also prohibited the use of voting qualifications or prerequisites to deny the vote based on race. A key call-out in the act that falls under voting qualifications or prerequisites is what's termed a test or device. A test or device is a specific prerequisite that would be used to keep people of color as well as language minorities, such as people who speak Spanish as their primary language, from voting. Such a test or device includes literacy tests, knowledge or educational requirements, evidence of moral character, and requiring that a voter have a recommendation or reference in order to participate in elections. Such tests or devices were prohibited by the Act. The Act states that under most circumstances, voting rights cannot be denied based on a citizen's command of the English language. Later revisions, particularly in 1975, added language minority status to the groups explicitly protected by the Act, which meant greater voting protections for Latino Americans, Asian Americans, and Native Americans. In addition, the Voting Rights Act gave investigative and enforcement power to the U.S. Attorney General and a group of federal examiners appointed by the U.S. Civil Service Commission. And one other key provision of the Voting Rights Act that is rarely ever discussed touches on voter fraud, particularly in elections that include one or more races for federal office. Section 11C states in part, quote, Whoever knowingly or willfully gives false information as to his name, address, or period of residence in the voting district for the purpose of establishing his eligibility to register or vote, or conspires with another individual for the purpose of encouraging his false registration to vote or illegal voting, or pays or offers to pay or accept payment either for registration to vote or for voting shall be fined not more than $10,000 or imprisoned not more than five years or both." End quote. The special provisions were more targeted and detailed sections of the act that applied to specific jurisdictions. In other words, 
certain states and localities. Before we get into how it was determined which states and localities the special provisions applied to, let's briefly discuss preclearance. In the context of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, preclearance refers to the requirement in Section 5 that certain states obtain federal approval before making changes to their election law. The approval hinged on whether or not the proposed change had the purpose or effect of discriminating on the basis of race and later language minority status. The jurisdiction making the proposed change would have the burden of proving that it would not have a discriminatory purpose or effect. The first and usually only step would be administrative preclearance. Administrative preclearance would place this decision in the hands of the U.S. Attorney General. The Attorney General would have 60 days to object, which could be extended another 60 days if more information is submitted later. If the Attorney General does not provide an objection, the proposed change will be able to go into effect. If an objection was provided and changes weren't made that were satisfactory, the proposed change would not go into effect. While a jurisdiction did not have the option of appealing directly to the Attorney General once the decision is made, they had the option of seeking judicial preclearance. In judicial preclearance, the state or locality would file a declaratory judgment against the Attorney General in federal district court, specifically a three-judge panel from the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. A declaratory judgment seeks to resolve an issue that is not cut and dry and needs a definitive resolution. A decision made by the U.S. District Court in the judicial preclearance case could be appealed by either party and could be taken all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And as most of us probably know, the Supreme Court is the court of last resort, the final stop. In addition, Section 6 of the Act provided for the appointment of federal examiners to oversee the voter registration functions of certain jurisdictions based on the number of complaints received that people were denied the right to vote, based on race or, in later revisions, language minority status, or if, for other reasons, it was deemed necessary to protect the rights of voters. Now, let's talk about what jurisdictions, what states and localities, would have been subject to preclearance. The conditions for preclearance were in Section 4B of the Civil Rights Act. In the original 1965 law, preclearance applied to jurisdictions that maintained a test or device as of November 1, 1964, and that less than 50% of citizens of voting age living there were either registered or actually voted in the 1964 presidential election. Given the history of active and systematic voter suppression against Black Americans in the South up until that point, it's no surprise that when the Voting Rights Act was first signed into law, the states and localities subject to preclearance under Section 4B were Southern states, specifically Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Virginia, as well as several North Carolina counties. Later revisions of the Voting Rights Act saw other states and counties become subject to preclearance, many of which were in other parts of the country. But there was another way that states and local governments could become subject to preclearance. Section 3C of the Voting Rights Act contains what is called a bail-in provision. 
This provision states that jurisdictions that do not fall under the formula set in Section 4B can be subject to preclearance if it is found by a court that voters have been racially discriminated against. Preclearance of bailed-in jurisdictions per Section 3C may differ from jurisdictions subject to 4B preclearance because the length of the preclearance and what types of election-related changes are covered are defined by a court in bailed-in jurisdictions, while Section 4B preclearance restrictions were defined by Section 5 and could not be modified by the courts. The Special Provisions of the Voting Rights Act, unlike the general provisions, were time-limited and had to be renewed periodically, because unlike the general provisions in most other federal laws, those had a sunset date or expiration date that would need to be renewed by Congress in order to remain in effect. These periodic provisions also gave lawmakers opportunities to update the triggering date. In other words, the date on which a tester device was maintained by a jurisdiction and therefore subject to preclearance for Section 4B. After its passage, the Voting Rights Act had a pretty fast and dramatically positive effect on voting rights and increasing the electorate in the United States, including the South. In the two years after the Voting Rights Act was enacted, black voter registration in states requiring preclearance increased from 29.1% to 52.1%. Nationwide, 23% of eligible black voters were registered prior to the Voting Rights Act, and by 1969, this percentage had shot up to 61%. The increase in registration was also tied to dramatically increased black turnout. Much of this increase in black registration was attributed to the active registering of black voters through the deployment of federal examiners to states and localities affected by the special provisions. There was also a marked increase in registration and turnout for black Americans and other people of color in the first 10 years of the act, which could be attributed to the act successfully stopping many of the practices that had been in place to deny people of color the vote. Later revisions, as well as litigation involving the special provisions over the next couple of decades, would clarify that the Voting Rights Act applied not only to barriers keeping people of color from voting, but also laws and policies aimed at diluting the impact of their votes, such as gerrymandering, which I'll discuss in more detail in a few minutes. The special provisions were what drove many of the gains realized by the Voting Rights Act, but at the same time would ultimately prove to be the chief weakness of the act, the Achilles heel that would lead to the eventual gutting of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The holidays are now upon us, and in worship of capitalism, we shop for gifts for those we care about and score deals for ourselves. If you're looking for any ideas, whether it's gifting yourself or gifting your family or friends, look no further than the Potstar Podcast merch store. Go to potstarpodcast.threadless.com where you can get your own Potstar Podcast gear. And as of this recording, you can get t-shirts for $15, plus all other merch is on sale. Potstar Podcast shirts, hoodies, masks, mugs, and more. Sale ends December 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern, so don't miss out. Check out hotstirpodcast.threatless.com today. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was highly successful in the years and decades to come. 
But for the Democratic Party, signing the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 before it into law came at a hefty cost. Much like the Civil Rights Act, support in Congress for the Voting Rights Act was divided more on geographic lines than partisan lines. Most House members and all senators who voted against the Voting Rights Act represented Southern states. Most were Democrats, though not all were. But ideologically, these were mainly conservatives. At this time in U.S. history, the parties were not particularly ideological. The region of the country you lived in, your race and ethnicity, and your religion, taken together, were stronger indicators of partisanship than your political ideology. But, as President Lyndon B. Johnson, himself a Southern Democrat, was reported to have said back then regarding his party as he signed these bills into law, quote, We have lost the South for a generation, end quote. He was unfortunately all too correct, as the electorate experienced what is called a dealignment, meaning a shift away from support of one of the parties. Many voters in the South were no longer loyal to the Democrats on a national level, at first becoming independent voters. But in the 1970s, Republican operatives employed the Southern strategy, exploiting existing racial divisions, and teamed up with conservative Christian leaders to develop and promote the Christian right. Due to these factors, Southern conservatives, and conservatives more generally, shifted their allegiances towards the Republican Party during the Reagan administration of the 1980s and beyond. Many conservative Democratic politicians moved a bit more slowly, but eventually went to the Republican Party where their voters were. And over the next several years, the Republicans would go on a consistent campaign of stacking the U.S. Supreme Court with justices who were conservative, partisan, and willing to overturn liberal gains on civil issues, including civil rights. Precedent be damned. A huge hook for conservative voters was always judges. The selling point was that if you elect the right office holders, they will appoint judges on all levels, but especially justices to the nation's highest court, who they promised would overturn abortion rights. And while that sell had some truth to it, as we're seeing here recently, this push for anti-abortion judges was also an effort to install a judiciary that performed an activist function for conservative politics across the board. Meanwhile, some conservative Democratic politicians in southern states who did not join the Republican Party would later become part of the Third Way, or the New Democrats, within the Democratic Party. Southern Democrats, such as Bill Clinton and Al Gore, would join with moderate Democrats from other regions of the country, such as Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Dianne Feinstein. These third-way Democrats were more than eager to distance themselves from Democratic gains of the past, specifically in relation to civil rights and the constituency that they gained due to the civil rights movement, mainly Black people. The new Democrats were billed as fiscally conservative and socially liberal. In practice, yes, they were fiscally conservative and would go on to show for corporate America, which was a departure from the historically pro-labor stance of the Democratic Party. But when it came to their social ideology, well, at best, 
your mileage may vary. On one hand, the Hillary Clinton healthcare reform initiative proposed in 1993 was in a number of ways better than the healthcare reform we got in 2010. On the other hand, the 1994 crime bill, 1996 Welfare Reform Act, and the Defense of Marriage Act the same year, all of which were passed and signed into law, were love letters to the right. The dominance of the third way in Democratic leadership over the past 30 years has led to the party distancing themselves from overt association with and advocacy for Black Americans and other marginalized groups within their base who brought them to the dance. In favor of pursuing the votes of white conservatives who left the party over a half century ago and are never, ever coming back. And in this pursuit, they have failed to protect the ability of their base to continue to vote for them and have their votes make a real difference going forward. In other words, the Democratic Party is contributing to their own irrelevancy. In a healthy democracy, this would signal the rise of another party, a more left-wing party that would take the Democrats' place and vie for control with the GOP. Unfortunately, we are not in a healthy democracy. I'm sure we all know this at this point. By taking some of the steps I'm going to now talk about, the Republican Party is pretty much securing one-party rule by political minority for many, many years to come. Short of major population shifts and increased economic equality, both of which are highly unlikely, minority rule will be a reality indefinitely. The Democrats don't seem to have the will to do anything about it. And unless they change course now, they soon won't have the power, even if they want it to. In 2008, then-junior U.S. Senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, won the presidency. The mainstream media, and many Americans in general, thought that the election of a president of partial African descent signaled a post-racial America. But some of us knew better. You see, Obama was viewed as a warning to conservative America, the America that nearly a half-century previously had to be forced by the federal government to allow Black people to even vote. The demographics in this country were changing and continue to change. White Americans have become a smaller share of the U.S. population than in generations past, and it is projected that by the year 2045, non-Hispanic white people will be a numerical minority. At this point, the Republican Party had a choice. Much of the Black and Latino populations are conservative on a number of issues, including LGBTQ plus rights and abortion. There are also opportunities to peel off voters of color on Second Amendment issues. But in order to gain a significant share of these voters, the GOP would need to moderate their stance on civil rights issues and stop using people of color as a ready-made scapegoat for societal problems such as crime, poverty, and the drug war. Or they could go on a stealth pursuit of marginalizing the votes of marginalized people. Of course, the Republican Party chose the latter. After each census, congressional seats are reallocated to the states based on population. Some states may gain residents, others may lose residents. Still others may experience a shift, 
But that shift may mean their population has shrunk as a share of the overall population of the U.S. In any case, states find out how many seats they will have for the next 10 years. And then state legislatures are in charge of redrawing congressional maps in order to determine what parts of the state office holders will represent. That process is called redistricting. The thing is, many state legislatures use redistricting as an opportunity to redraw districts for partisan advantage, referred to as gerrymandering. Over the course of American history, both political parties have done this at one time or another. While gerrymandering explicitly based on race is illegal, the courts have ruled pretty consistently that gerrymandering based on partisanship is permissible. For example, the fact that Black Americans overwhelmingly vote Democratic, the Republican Party has found a way to lessen the impact of Black votes and, depending on geography, the votes of other people of color, without explicitly calling out race in their efforts. In 2010, the Republican Party was able to mobilize a nationalized, well-funded campaign that allowed them to win control of government at the local, state, and federal levels. This was also the same year as the U.S. Census, which occurs once every 10 years. Over the next year, as states went through redistricting efforts, the GOP was able to use their advantage in state legislatures to lock in and expand their political advantage nationally through gerrymandering. This ensured that their proportion of seats in Congress would be greater than their share of voters in the population. Even to this day, while there are more Democrats than Republicans in the overall U.S. population, it's extremely difficult for the House to maintain their Democratic majority and are in danger of losing it in 2022. Gerrymandering is a form of voter suppression because it all but eliminates the influence of certain subsets of voters based on who they're more likely to support and where they live. Instead of voters choosing which parties and candidates should be in office, politicians select their voters, which is an end run around accountability. Because partisanship is the strongest driver of voting behavior, constructing congressional maps based on partisan advantage poses little risk to the Republican Party. Even with demographic change, such changes are not happening equally everywhere. And due to persistent housing discrimination and racial disparities in employment, income, and wealth, demographic change is unlikely to substantially increase racial and ethnic integration. Due to systemic and structural racism, among many other factors, many parts of the country may remain racially, ethnically, and economically segregated. This is why the Senate, which allocates two senators per state regardless of a state's size, gives rural conservative white voters a distinct built-in political advantage, and it's extremely difficult for Democrats to win regardless of demographic change in this current system. The point is, over the next 24 or 25 years, some parts of the country may diversify, but many may not. And that will only serve to exacerbate inequalities in terms of whose vote counts and whose does not. Here in Ohio, one of the states that passed a fair maps law, the congressional map recently signed into law gives the Republican Party 80% of congressional seats, even though only 53% of Ohioans supported Donald Trump in the 2020 election. I live in a city that is predominantly Democrat, but surrounded by suburbs that are mostly Republican. 
if this map is upheld as a result of the inevitable court challenges, my vote for Congress will continue not to count for at least the next 10 years. Because my city has been gerrymandered out of its own district to represent us, much like it was in 2010. Though the gerrymander this time is a lot worse, and more blue parts of Ohio are slated to lose seats. Tactics like this run counter to the principle of one person, one vote, and cheats parts of the electorate, disproportionately people of color, out of the opportunity to select a congressional house rep who actually represents them, and often by extension, representation in the state legislature. Gerrymandering also discourages citizens from voting because their vote is unlikely to make a difference in those races due to how the maps are drawn. Even if the vote is for statewide office, senator, or president, which are not directly affected by gerrymandering, it gives those who have been gerrymandered out of legislative representation less to vote for, and this is especially important in midterm elections. Unless the courts reconsider their approach to gerrymandering, finding that partisanship is essentially a mask for racially driven voter suppression and choose to take appropriate action, which is quite unlikely given the ideological composition of the court, gerrymandering will continue to be used as a tool to effectively undercut the impact of voting for people of color and other marginalized groups. But it wasn't enough to dilute the effect of votes cast by Black Americans and other marginalized people. Republicans have also sought to turn the clock back so that it's much, much harder to cast a vote, especially if you're not the right kind of voter. There were several developments that enabled these actions, but I'm going to briefly mention three U.S. Supreme Court rulings that broke down protections for voters, especially marginalized voters, and paved the way for our country's march toward minority rule. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County v. Holder that the preclearance formula used in Section 4B of the Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional because the majority deemed the formula old. This is what Chief Justice John Roberts wrote as part of the court's decision. Quote, A statute's current burdens must be justified by current needs, and any disparate geographic coverage must be sufficiently related to the problem that it targets. The coverage formula met that test in 1965, but no longer does so. Coverage today is based on decades-old data and eradicated practices. The formula captures states by reference to literacy tests and low voter registration and turnout in the 1960s and early 1970s. But such tests have been banned nationwide for over 40 years. And voter registration and turnout numbers in the covered states have risen dramatically in the years since. Racial disparity in those numbers was compelling evidence justifying the preclearance remedy and the coverage formula. There is no longer such a disparity. End quote. In other words, according to Chief Justice Roberts, if the rules work, you don't need them anymore. It's like having high blood pressure and being prescribed medication to normalize it. Since the medication works, that means, well, I don't need it anymore, and you get off the meds. How much you want to bet that your blood pressure will spike again? This rationale makes absolutely no sense, and something tells me he probably knew that, but that's all alleged. You see, Section 4B, if you recall, includes the guidelines that would make a state or locality subject to preclearance. 
By striking down this section of the Voting Rights Act, this ruling took out an essential aspect of the act and states and localities that would previously need to pre-clear their election and voting rules changes with the federal government would now be free to make changes to these rules with impunity. States could still be bailed into preclearance using Section 3C, but that would mean laws suppressing the vote would already have to be in effect in order to pursue litigation, and such cases would need to be brought by the Justice Department, which may or may not want to pursue such cases depending on who's in the executive office, or by individual citizens withstanding. Lawsuits cost money. So it should be clear that bailing in states and localities is incredibly difficult. In the five years after the Shelby County decision, nearly a thousand polling places were closed across the country, many of which were in southern black neighborhoods. Shocker. Closing polling places leads to longer lines at polling places in these neighborhoods, which dissuades voters in those neighborhoods, some of whom may not have flexible jobs or adequate childcare, from sticking it out and casting a ballot. These are conditions less likely to be found in predominantly white or well-off neighborhoods. Another case that negatively affected voting rights is Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute in 2018. This case involved the practice of voter purging. This is when states would purge or remove registered voters from the voter rolls. The state of Ohio's voter purge rules are pretty aggressive. The process of an eventual purge starts when a voter misses a single federal election. This aggressive purging disproportionately harms people in poverty who are more likely to be transient or have unstable living situations and people who are working class and have much more difficulty making it to the polls on a consistent basis. While states may remove registered voters from the voter rolls, the National Voter Registration Act states that registered voters should not be removed from the rolls due to a failure to vote. In other words, there should not be a use-it-or-lose-it condition to registration. The U.S. Supreme Court saw it differently, and in a narrow 5-4 decision, upheld Ohio's voter purge process. This has opened a door to other states aggressively removing voters from the rolls, which again disproportionately affects marginalized groups. One other Supreme Court case that I want to talk about briefly is Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee, which was handed down this year. This involved two election laws instituted by the state of Arizona, which had been one of the state's subject to preclearance prior to Shelby County versus Holder. One of the election laws was passed after Shelby County and it banned the handling of completed early voting or absentee ballots by anyone other than an election official or family member of the voter. This made ballot collection, a practice that makes it easier for those who live in remote areas or have mobility issues to cast their ballot, a felony offense. The other election law in question was a decades-old law invalidating the ballots of those voting in the wrong precinct. The central constitutional question pertained to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits election laws that discriminate on the basis of race. Prior to Brnovich, Section 2 had typically been interpreted in terms of either intent or impact. In other words, whether or not a state or locality intended to discriminate based on race, or if the impact of a law, regardless of intent, is racially discriminatory. But in Brnovich, 
the Supreme Court upheld Arizona's election laws 6-3 along ideological lines. But the more wide-ranging effect of this decision is the neutering of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Justice Samuel Alito, in his majority decision, included narrow guideposts for Section 2 that deviate from judicial precedent and, as a result, has essentially rendered this section of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 ineffective. So the chief argument made in favor of these voter suppression laws is voter fraud. The fact is that restrictive voter ID laws were never really needed. You were always required to have some proof of residency upon registration in most states and required to sign in to vote. Even under that system, very few people committed voter fraud. Yet over the past several years, Republicans have supported and passed laws in several states that directly target one's eligibility and opportunity to cast a ballot. Let's take one key example, voter ID. When I first exercised my right to vote in 2000, I was a college student. I was able to register and vote at my university using my student ID. Even though my driver's license was from a different state, it made sense for me to be able to vote where I lived nine or 10 months out of the year, and even the entire 12 months one of those years. But many states have now made it much more difficult for college students to vote, implementing rules that narrow down proper identification to a driver's license or state ID, or requiring that students vote where they're considered permanent residents even though especially at residential universities that cater to traditional students. Such students may not live there for most of the year. When you also consider laws that restrict one's ability to receive an absentee or general mail-in ballot, voter ID restrictions have the effect of disenfranchising these people. Ostensibly, voter ID restrictions, as well as other restrictions to voter eligibility and ballot access, are being instituted to curb voter fraud. But it's a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. Even when viewing instances of voter fraud cataloged by conservative sources, such as the Heritage Foundation, there are only a handful of instances of voter fraud, and those instances carry steep penalties as it is. Voter ID laws were never really needed. But Jay, doesn't everybody need a voter ID? How's requiring voter ID voter suppression? Isn't it racist to think black people and other minorities can't just get an ID like the rest of us? It's the soft bigotry of low expectations. To reduce this to the narrative that you're being racist for thinking people of color can't get voter ID, it's said a lot among conservatives. But this framing is an oversimplification and distortion of the underlying conditions involved in voter suppression of this sort. The fact is that voter ID requirements constitute voter suppression, and here's why. Due to the ban on poll taxes, states need to provide a way to vote that doesn't have a direct cost, so states often provide free IDs for the purposes of voting. But even if a state provides free ID in order to vote, it's not really free. Most accepted forms of identification require you to furnish supporting documents, and those have a cost. So, for example, to obtain a driver's license or state ID, you'll likely need a birth certificate or passport, 
both of which cost money and time to obtain if they're available. If you are born elsewhere, such as another state, a birth certificate may be an even greater cost due to shipping. And there are some Americans who simply do not have birth certificates. Many older Americans who are born in rural southern communities, especially communities of color, did not have their births registered, and it wasn't expected or necessary at the time. For people in this position, who again are disproportionately people of color, disproportionately poor, these are people who are American citizens, but it is impossible for them to get what they need to vote. For people who are poor or working class, especially those who work in the underground economy, it's not a given that they'll have the proper government identification to vote. And the financial or time cost of obtaining that ID may be a, quite a lot to ask, more so than those who see obtaining an ID a minor but necessary inconvenience. It's one thing for someone who makes enough money to have a decent car and a job that provides generous PTO to take a morning or afternoon off to drive to the health office to pick up a birth certificate and to the social security office to order a new social security card. And likely if they have a good car and a good job, they already have those items anyway. But not everyone has those on hand. If you're poor and have had to move frequently, important documents are more likely to get lost and you're less likely to hold a job that will let you take time off willy-nilly to pick up your birth certificate, order a social security card, or obtain a driver's license or state ID. Utilities, for example, may not be in your name. If you don't have a working car, you may need to take a bus or some other form of public transportation, which can add a lot of time, sometimes hours, on your journey to get everything you need, not to mention cost. And all that to stand in a line, likely a long line if you live in a poor neighborhood or a neighborhood of color, to perform a basic civic duty, the bare minimum, the bare minimum to participate in our country's democracy. The cost benefit on an individual level isn't going to feel worth it for people who are worried about how they will feed themselves and their kids and keep a roof over their family's heads. What often adds to this big ask for people lower on the socioeconomic ladder is that some states that place hefty restrictions on voter ID have also made these IDs more difficult for some of their residents to obtain. For example, back in 2015, Alabama rolled out stringent voter ID requirements and at the same time closed 31 of their approximately 75 driver's license offices in the state. So close to half. And many of these were in majority black and Latino areas of the state. While the decision was reversed a month later after public criticism, the act of closing these offices to begin with meant that it would have added yet another obstacle for black and Latino residents to obtain the necessary identification in order to vote. Other states have taken similar steps, such as closing driver's license offices or limiting operating hours for offices in areas populated by majority people of color. So as we can see, it's not as simple as black people or other people of color being treated as if they're incapable of meeting the same requirements as other Americans. The issue is that additional obstacles are often placed in the way of poor people and people of color that effectively make it much more difficult for them to obtain what they need to vote. It's much more difficult for them to do what many of us may take for granted, 
And that inequality is by design. So the narrative that you must be racist if you think people of color can't get voter ID is incredibly disingenuous and short-sighted. If you truly think this, go out and touch grass. We must pay attention to how these arguments are worded and understand that a lot of the wording is deeply manipulative, and we need to be more than willing to call that out. Other voting restrictions have targeted the number of polling locations in certain neighborhoods, polling location hours, the availability of early voting, and the availability and rules surrounding voter drop boxes, eligibility for absentee and mail-in voting, and that's not an exhaustive list. While voter suppression has been a tactic of modern conservatives for quite some time, the 2020 election led to operatives on the right going into overdrive with barriers keeping marginalized groups from voting freely. The 2020 election was a bit different than previous elections over the past several years due to it occurring during a major pandemic. Historically, mail-in voting in particular has been used primarily by elderly white Americans, who tend to be some of the most reliable voters. But the politicizing of COVID-19 by the Donald Trump regime led into how the major parties mobilized their voters in 2020. Due to the pandemic, many states loosened restrictions on mail-in and early voting. Mail-in voting in particular was framed as the safer choice in a pandemic, of course placing Americans at lower risk of contracting COVID-19 than voting in person. But deep partisan and ideological differences in how seriously Americans viewed COVID affected how they approached the ballot box. Democrats pushed mail-in voting. Republicans supported in-person voting. So in the November 2020 general election, Democratic voters, including Black voters, were more likely to use mail-in ballots while Republican voters were more likely to vote in person. And the results of the election reflected this. There was a high influx of mail-in ballots in a lot of states, including the swing states. And it meant that there was an apparent swing seen in the presidential election results. The in-person ballots were usually counted first and generally favored Donald Trump. But the mail-in votes were counted last in most instances which took days because there were so many, especially in swing states. These ballots favored Joe Biden, giving him the win. Black turnout by mail in and around cities such as Atlanta, Detroit, and Philadelphia helped Biden make it over the top in states like Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And that in particular really got under the skin of Trump and his sycophants. The attacks on mail-in voting after the 2020 election demonstrate that the issue isn't really that mail-in ballots are particularly vulnerable to fraud. They aren't. Mail-in ballots weren't a problem when it was primarily older white Americans using them. But since larger numbers of Black voters used them in 2020, especially in and around urban areas, and their votes made a difference, now it's a problem. Hmm. The goal of voting restrictions targeting all aspects of elections in the voting process is to keep the wrong types of Americans, at least in the view of the Republican Party, from voting, either actively through direct obstruction or passively through discouragement. When you have Republican politicians saying that it should be harder to vote and that it's the quality of votes that matter, 
they're really saying that some Americans are more worthy to participate in democratic governance than others. It's Jim Crow era voting restrictions all over again. I discussed in part one of the voter suppression series that the early era of voter suppression during slavery and in the post-Reconstruction period handed conservative white Southerners a disproportionately high number of political office holders on all levels of government with a greater impact on government than their numbers dictated. Voter suppression at that time stole representation from Black Americans and other people of color. And make no mistake, this round of voter suppression is much the same. In an America where demographics are shifting, modern-day voter suppression is being instituted not because of voter fraud, but because the powerful do not want to lose their power as their share of the population declines. The end game is minority rule, tyranny of the minority. If we educate the next generation their way, young Americans will have no idea, no clue, and will take American apartheid as tradition, the way it should be. This is why we need to resist the censorship of real history and real social studies. This is why teaching and learning real history and teaching it to children K-12 through as appropriate and learning about civics and social systems, this is why telling the truth matters. So a lot of what I've shared in this episode and in this series may come off as a bit bleak. The situation is and always has been serious, but it's important to resist the urge to give up on our future. If voting didn't matter, those in power would not be fighting so hard to keep us from voting and from our votes counting as much as theirs. So what can we do about voter suppression? There are a couple of bills that have been floating around recently to counteract Republican voter suppression efforts. The John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2021 would make voting rules that discriminate based on race, language, or ethnicity illegal and allow voters to challenge laws that discriminate. It would direct the courts to consider factors such as history of official voting discrimination when hearing lawsuits challenging voting practices. It would reestablish guidelines for states and localities to be subject to preclearance, and this preclearance would be for 10 years. A state would be subject to preclearance if 15 or more voting rights violations occurred in the past 25 years, if 10 or more violations occurred in the 25-year period with at least one committed by the state, or three or more violations have been committed by the state over the past 25 years. A political subdivision, such as a county, city, or other locality, would be subject to preclearance if three or more voting rights violations have occurred over the past 25 years. States and localities that have met particular thresholds regarding groups of color would be required to pre-clear certain election-related changes prior to implementation, such as redistricting and changes to election methods, and such changes must be announced to the public. Another bill that addresses voting rights is Senate Bill 2747, also known as the Freedom to Vote Act. This bill focuses on removing barriers to voting that, as discussed earlier, affect voters disproportionately based on race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic class. 
By honing in on voter registration and access, election security and integrity, redistricting, and campaign finance, it would expand voter registration, including automatic and same-day registration, as well as expanding voter access, including early voting and mail-in voting. The bill would also limit the removal of registered voters from the voter rolls, which directly addresses the Supreme Court decision in Houston. It would also allow Americans with criminal records to vote, unless currently serving a felony sentence. The bill sets out guidelines for redistricting and largely bans mid-decade redistricting. In addition, it expands the prohibition on campaign funding by foreign nationals and includes other provisions related to campaign financing and political advertising. Both bills have been floating around their respective chambers, but haven't really advanced past them. We need to make sure we're pressuring not only our government officials, but the mainstream media and especially those who fund both our politicians and media to support these bills and to only fund politicians and outlets that will tell the truth and support real efforts to re-fortify the Voting Rights Act and make additional changes that will make it easier to vote, not harder. If that also means limiting the filibuster, so be it. The year 2045 is fast approaching, and despite the right's best efforts, we are still diversifying as a country. Yet the more we diversify, the tighter the grip on power by those who already possess it. The thing we need to be mindful of as time marches on is that if things get worse, which unfortunately is likely, we may get to a point where America's democracy is a distant memory and stronger, inventive, and revolutionary efforts will be necessary to bring forth an America that realizes the ideals of liberty and equality. The question is if each of us are truly ready for that. If and when that day comes. Thank you very much for listening to Potstar Podcast. I truly appreciate your patience as I finished up the voter suppression series. To be candid, this was kind of a hard one for me, especially towards the end. And given the subject matter and the stark implications, it's clear as to why. But I do have so many topics I want to discuss in future episodes. And I also want to touch on some of your suggested episodes. So expect to see that shortly, especially in the early part of 2022. There will be a War on Christmas special this year, and that is already in the works. So the Potster Podcast holiday tradition will indeed continue. If you like what you heard, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Please take some time to give the podcast five stars and leave a review. And tell your friends as well. Go to potsterpodcast.com for new episodes, merch, and more. And I love to tweet. So follow me at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. 